I'm here in the mountains of Colorado near Breckenridge in um, this ski lodge of a home, about 9,200 square feet, that uh, belongs to Carlin Tucker and his wife Angela. 360 degree views of, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand acres. Why am I here? I'm here to talk to the man himself, Carlin Tucker. Uh, super successful entrepreneur, business owner, has done a lot of things, but it wasn't always this way. We're here to talk about growth and how to get from point A to point Z. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Grow With Tim podcast. I'm Tim Joyner. I'm here with my friend, uh, Carlin Tucker. Carlin, thanks for joining me on, this, on today's show. You're welcome. Carlin, tell us a little, we're going to hear about your past and how you got where you are today, but let's set the stage. Give us a little concept of what life is like for you today. Tell us who Carlin Tucker is, what do you do, and then we're going to rewind the tape and talk about where you started and the most interesting part of the, the middle part, how you got from there to here. Well, uh, currently we're sitting in our mountain home and um, it's one of three homes that we own and we've got an office building and I own three businesses. Um, they're financial services firms. Um, one is um, an insurance related, one's a securities uh, related registered investment advisor firm and one's a retail practice in the Denver metro area. And um, we um, employ about 40 folks and we have over 800 advisors that sell for us all over the U.S. I believe we're in every state except for Alaska. I don't know if it's too cold up there or what. but. Yeah. But um, it took a lot of doing to get here, but that's where we're at now. Yeah, congratulations. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. Tell me about, if we rewind all the way back, you grew up on a farm, I think, in Michigan. I did, right? yeah. Rural Michigan, Hillsdale County, the poorest county in Michigan. And uh, learned how to work hard as a young uh, lad. Uh, I always had chores to do on the farm. And uh, we had a dairy farm, we had chickens we had to care for. And, and so often before school and for sure after school, there was chores to do. And, um, you know, I didn't know at the time, but it probably taught you some measure of discipline. And uh, I remember my dad used to call me a procrastinator. And uh, so um, it bothered me. And one night in the summertime, I'm probably 10 years old, and my dad had a rule that I had to mow the lawn before I could play on Saturday mornings. Well, dad loved lawns. So he had lawn around the house, the chicken houses, the barn. Um, he planted grass along the side of the road. And uh, so I'm laying in bed on a Friday night in the summertime with the window open and I hear a farmer farming in the, in the field at like three or four in the morning. And I thought, well, man, if he can be out farming, maybe I can be out mowing. So I got my clothes on and went out to the bar barn and I taped uh, with duct tape a flashlight to the hood of the Cub Cadet riding lawnmower. And I mowed around the house one time. The second time around, I'd woken up my parents and dad's on the front doorstep. He says, Carlin, what do you think you're doing? I said, well, Dad, you told me that I have to mow lawn before I can play on Saturday mornings. I'm just getting a head start. I love it. And then he's like, well, what is that on the hood there? I said, well, that's my light so I can see. And, um, and he looks and he says, all right, go on. Yeah. And after that, I didn't ever hear that about the procrastinator again. And uh, so maybe a good lesson learned. But uh, that farm life taught me a lot, I believe. When I was 16, my father's health failed. We had to move to Arizona for a desert climate for my dad's lungs, and that helped him live a little longer. And uh, I went to work at Sears for about six months, uh, sold a lot of lawnmowers and table saws. They wouldn't give me a raise, so I quit. And I started my own business in the mountains of Arizona cutting firewood. And I went to um, an A period of uh, school in 11th and 12th grade that started at 6 a.m. So from 6 until noon uh, or 11 o'clock, I'd be done with school. Then I would drive two hours to the mountains, cut two cords of wood, get home around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and do that again the next day. I did that for two years most every day except for um, occasionally not a Saturday or Sunday. And, um, and then 
uh, did okay with doing that. Uh, ended up in uh, San Diego going to college and I wanted to make some money there and I've got my pickup truck and my chainsaws but no forest. So I thought, well, there's palm trees here and I started trimming the palm trees and I knocked on the door and I said, I'll trim your tree and for 20 bucks and I'll haul the fronds away. And they said, sure. That took me maybe half an hour and I knocked next door 25 bucks, next door 30, 35. <laughs> I found they'd pay $30 and I could do two trees an hour. So I'm making $60 an hour. I'm 18 years old at college. And, um, and after two weeks of this, I thought, ah, I'm, I'm crazy. I got, I got to do this differently. So I, I got a couple of friends. I showed them how to climb the trees. And I just knocked on the doors uh, in front of the guys going down the street. And then I started really making money for the first time in my life. Now you and, introduce scale and other people to that. Yeah, yeah. Leverage and, and um, uh, delegation of, of the work. And I also recognize that uh, it takes a little more ability to communicate with a person at the front door than it does to climb the tree. And uh, I didn't know all this at the time, but I was recognizing that the people business is a profitable business. Mm. If you can interact with people on a level where they want to do what you're recommending. So I recommended, let me trim your tree, and they decided that was in their best interest. And, and uh, not, it's not that hard, but not everybody can knock on the door and do that. And probably more people could climb the tree and run the chainsaw. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but an early on lesson so i want to back up for yeah. a minute tell me about cutting trees in the in the mountains yeah. i've heard you tell before about a time when i think you had a flat tire with your yeah. truck tell us about that <clears throat> one of the things i think that i've been able to use in business is being unwilling to take no for an answer and no appears in many different forms it can be a gatekeeper it could be a lack of an opportunity it could be an obstacle so i'm uh, i had a flat tire in my truck and i'm by myself up in the forest of arizona and I had a um, spare tire and a lug wrench, but I didn't have a jack. I had a tow um, rope with me, and I got an idea after thinking about it. I backed the truck up to a ponderosa pine tree, and I stood in the tailgate and climbed the tree, and I put it around about 10, 12 feet high in the tree, and then down on the axle on the side that had the flat, and then I got in the truck and floored it. And when that rope came tight at such an angle, I pulled it back in the truck up in the air. It took several tries because I couldn't hold it there because the parking brake affected the back, brake, back wheels and they were in the air. So I took an ax and wedged it between the brake pedal and the seat so I could get out where the truck's still in the air and change the tire. OSHA approved. I'm yeah, sure. right. But see, the alternative was walk like 18 miles to get to the nearest highway. And then what do you do? Flag down someone you don't know. So you figure out how I solve my problem. And yeah. that... I think that started on the farm and, and, and like you know, the lawnmower story, and it just continued throughout my life. I think 99% of the people in America would have given up. They would have said, well, yeah. I don't have a jack. I can't yeah. change the tire. Right? Yeah, right. And persistence. I, I find the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is often all, or at least largely attributable to how many times they're going to persist when they get a no or when they you know, yeah. encounter difficulty. Yeah. I, I ran into another scenario that was beneficial for me. I was in San Diego and I was trimming these trees, but I also on the side worked for a construction company and they had just bought a city block of homes near downtown San Diego and they needed to tear them all down and build up a condominium project. So I heard the owners and project managers talking about how much that would cost and how to do it and, and I butted in. I said, guys, if you'll rent me a Caterpillar D9 bulldozer with a clam jaw bucket, I can tear those homes down for you and you know what you're paying me and I'll probably save you a lot of money. And uh, if I do a good job, maybe you could, you know, give me a little bonus or something. And they said, you can do that? I said, absolutely. So the day came and they... You grew up they, on a farm. Sure yeah, I grew up on a farm, right. Yeah. So the day came and they're backing the bulldozer off the uh, little boy semi-truck. And I flagged the operator down and I jumped up in the cabinet and said, quick, show me how to run this thing. 
And now I'd driven tractors before on the farm um, in my Cub Cadet lawnmower, but I'd never driven a bulldozer like this. So he showed me the levers, and it wasn't that uh, hard to grab it, uh, a hold of it. I spun it around, went up to the first house, ripped the porch roof off, dumped it over in the pile, and looked over at all the hard hat uh, managers, and they're all over there clapping. And I'm like, whew, got that one done. And, um, but uh, I don't know what, it, what there was in me that was willing to speak up and say, I can do that, when I didn't know if I could do it or not. But that um, confidence or courage or willing to take some risk, I think I thought, what's the worst thing that can happen? They're going to fire me? I'm not going to do this job forever anyway. This is a temporary scenario. So why not stick your neck out a little bit and see if you can accomplish something you otherwise wouldn't? Somebody said courage is not acting with no fear. It's acting in spite of the fear. And I yeah. think you, you have often said yes when you weren't quite sure how to figure it out, but you knew that you could figure it out. Yeah. Like you didn't know yet, but you knew that you had the wherewithal inside you, the team around mm -hmm. you, the resources to figure it out. That's probably because, you know, there's more than one way to achieve um, a, a goal or to accomplish something. There's probably, in most cases, not only just one way. Um, and so I might not even get the goal achieved with the most efficient way because it's the first time maybe you've ever done it. Yeah. But as long as you reach the goal, it's a little bit of a milestone in your life. You build a little bit more confidence, and maybe you get a little bit better the next time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. When I was a teenager, I had a reputation for being good with technology, and the mayor of my town called and said, can you build us the first website for our city? And I had no idea how to build a website, but I said, absolutely, yeah. I'd be glad to build that. And yeah. I went to the library and got some books and figured it out, and that launched me into... I mean, really set the trajectory for my life. Yeah. yeah. I was not great with technology. When I was a kid, my parents said, time to go to bed. And I had seen a commercial on our black and white TV that Tarzan was coming on. And I'd never seen it. So I snuck back down in my pajamas and barefoot. And I turned the volume down as low as I could. And I got right in front of it and put my barefoot on there so I could control the volume so, so that <laughs> nobody would hear. I got caught, but that was my technology. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. So you've been in the mountains cutting firewood. You've You've been uh, behind the controls of a bulldozer. You've been selling for Sears and Roebuck. Um, what's next? Uh, Angela and I, my wife, um, got uh, interested in starting an imprint sportswear business. And um, it actually started out with uh, imprinting glassware, coffee cups, drinking glasses with um, high school fight songs, mascots, um, their uh, logos, and so on. And we sold it primarily to high schools all throughout the West. And they used it as a fundraiser at the band or the football team. And uh, so it took right off. Um, Angela was good with, with artwork and photography, and, uh, and I was okay with sales. And with the two combined, we made a beautiful brochure sent to all the high schools in the West, and the orders just started coming in. And then I would go visit the schools to kick off the fundraiser. Within about six months of starting it, we had receivables of over $2 million. We were buying uh, Libby glassware um, semi-truck loads of glassware shipped to our glass decorator in Los Angeles who would decorate the uh, glassware, then ship it directly out to the schools um, where we had a purchase order, where we knew we were going to get paid, and then you collect the, um, the dollars. That was going quite well, and then we had a salesman embezzle from us. My banker found out about it, and he was a big help, so he called my line of credit due. Mm -hmm. So just like that, I had no liquidity, and I couldn't pay the payroll that week. I had to lay everybody off, and we lost the business. So uh, that was uh, my, my first kind of eye-opening thing. It's like, how do I make better decisions to protect myself from the efforts of my work so that it can't be lost like that. So I um, had dabbled a little bit in the past with insurance and I thought I'm going to get back into that right after the, um, the closing of our imprinted sportswear business. So we moved to Colorado in 1991 and uh, I started selling long-term care insurance to retirees. And one of the things that got me interested in helping people with insurance and eventually with financial planning and, and uh, investing 
was that uh, when I was still in Arizona, um, it's where I met my wife um, and we got married in 1986 there, uh, I went to a gas station one day and I looked over at the other pump and there's a, a woman standing there um, crying. And so I went over to her and I said, ma'am, are you hurt? And she says, no, my husband just died and he always put the gas to the car and I don't know how to work the pump. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'm so sorry. So I showed her how to put her credit card in and how to work the pump. And, and I thought, I'll bet there's a lot of um, people when they lose a spouse or a business partner or a family member that they're unprepared for what life is um, going to bring them. So maybe I, thinking about this people business um, angle, could provide a little more knowledge and support, maybe some care, some love uh, to um, people to help them where I begin to gain some expertise. So that got me real interested in the insurance side of things um, to help protect people against uh, losses in their life. And I focused on the retirement segment of the marketplace. And specifically, when I first got started in long-term care insurance to provide home health care and coverage against nursing homes and so on. And uh, I did that for a number of years, had good success. But then in 1997, I discovered a new product that had just come out a couple years earlier. Let called me push a, pause because I yeah. want to hear this part. Okay. I, I, I'm noticing an interesting trend. Farming, you're cutting woods, you're, you're, you're cutting firewood, you're trimming palm trees, you're bulldozing, you're selling. You started a glassware imprint business and this custom. All of these are very different from one another. They are, yeah. So, what what about these things um, made you say that looks like a good opportunity? Like why glassware or why insurance? You know, it's a great question. And while you were asking it, my mind's racing. And I'm thinking that probably some of those came to my mind because it's what I probably felt I was capable of at the time. So when I left Sears, I'm only 16 years old. And that's my first kind of official business. And I started cutting firewood because I grew up on the farm. I'd worked chainsaws. I knew that there was a forest a few hours away, and I loved the out-of-doors. So all of that probably came to, together, and I had a pickup truck. That's what my first vehicle was on the farm. So I, I went and bought some chainsaws and went up to the mountains and started cutting firewood. So probably my life circumstances up to that point in time um, helped my mind come up with that as a solution for an alternative um, job to working at Sears. And um, then, but why not go get another job? Why not go to go across the street to a serious oh, competitor? Okay, good, good question. Because I felt like that I'd worked really hard for the company. I'd given them a good value for what they paid me. They didn't pay much, um, and I'd been selling a lot, and they wouldn't acknowledge it. So it was like I was going to get treated like everybody else. And uh, I don't know that I thought this at the time, but it almost felt like socialism. Like you know, uh, fair is not equal, and equal is not fair. I was outperforming the other employees. Um, and so I didn't want to be paid the same amount they were yep. for the performance I did. And so I, when, when I discovered from the store manager he wasn't going to acknowledge that, I thought, well, I'm not going to put myself in a position where that happens again. I'm going to be my own person. So yeah. probably at 16, that's the first time I decided that I don't want to work for other people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so now we're going to fast forward back to where I interrupted you. You were selling long-term care insurance, trying yeah. to help people be prepared. Yeah. And then you discovered a new product. Yeah. So fixed indexed annuities came out. They're linked to the market safely. You can't lose money. You get some of the upside in exchange for none of the downside. It was a, a great product, still is today. And, uh, but what was amazing was uh, my long-term care sales, my average commission was $1,500 per household. And my, long -term, and my fixed indexed annuity, my very first sale, I sold $100,000 and my commission was $15,000 and I didn't have to go through healthcare underwriting so I got paid right away 
and uh, I 10 times my income overnight. I remember taking my wife out to celebrate a dinner that night. I said, honey, you're not going to believe this, but we just 10 times their income. She's like, did you rob a bank? Or, you know, and uh, it, was, it was so amazing that that could even happen. Until that happened to me, I wouldn't have believed it could happen. Mm -hmm. and, um, but just the knowledge of a brand new product that um, people would benefit by that had the ability to pay better than the one I was already doing changed our life. And so I immediately determined, even though I believed in long-term care insurance, I was going to delegate it to others in my office. They would handle those deals, uh, those sales, still do today. And I would focus on uh, that new product, the fixed index annuities, and had tremendous success. Within a short duration of time, I found myself on the front cover of a trade publication. At this time, see, I'm still a one-man show. I'm just... I'm just gaining clients one at a time, doing my own thing, did seminars to find them. But they put me on the cover and the phone starts ringing. And people are like, how are you doing what you're doing and having so much success and could you show me? So I'm thinking, well, okay, if I show them, what's in it for me? Um, and uh, so we both benefit. And I discovered there's this vehicle called a um, field marketing organization, um, NFMO. And um, it's a, an agency that teaches distribution network advisors how to sell insurance companies' products. Many insurance companies manufacture the product, but they don't want to sell it. So they left that up to the middleman, the FMO, and so then that would be my job, becoming an FMO, to go out and recruit, find the advisors, train them, teach them how to be successful, and then the insurance company benefits, I benefit, the advisor benefits, the general public benefits. So um, in the, uh, 1998, before I became an FMO, I thought I'm going to test this idea. So I, over the course of the following year, I hired 12 insurance um, advisors as captive agents to me, and I paid for all their marketing, I paid for the office, and for the secretarial support, and they went out and started selling um, based on how I um, showed them that I was having success. It worked really well. But one thing I discovered fairly quickly was some of them could sell better than others, so the ones that didn't sell as well eventually washed out. The ones that were the very best in selling eventually became my competition. And understandably, because you don't want to stay in the same place, everybody wants opportunity. So um, I thought, well, now they're competing against me in my own hometown, my own backyard. But if I become a national marketing organization or a field marketing organization, then I can recruit advisors around the country that are not my backyard, and that's what I did. So um, in about 2000, um, we started an FMO, and we started recruiting all over the country. And we had tremendous success very, very rapidly, very quickly. We might have 70 um, independent um, advisors come out to Denver to check out what I was doing and when they left uh, two three days later maybe 55 or 60 of them were now um, contracted with us and we do that again the next month and the next month and things just really took off and uh, uh, I always would have the success in telling our advisors that what I'm going to show you now is what I do personally that works I didn't read it in a book that, or if I did I first have done it but I'm not teaching you theory, uh, like in a classroom at a college. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching you real life, what I know works. And I've been in a lot of interviews um, to help folks. So for example, I had a period of time where I worked in Southern California, and my first office was at um, gate number one of Leisure World outside of this retirement development. I ran a full page, I ran an ad, a full page ad in the Leisure World newspaper. People would cut out the response uh, card, mail it back into me, and I would have a lead and I'd call them. I was booking one out of five of those into appointments, and I thought, I need to I'm delegate this. I hired two women to do that for me, and I, I could go out and work. But they were turning one out of ten into appointments. So I thought, how do I get my head in theirs? That night on television, I watched the show called 911, 
And the, the woman called in and said, quick, my child's choking. Say, how do I save them? And the operator flipped open a Cardex file that said choking on the, on the uh, tab. And then she read what to do and it saved the child's life. Thought, That's what I need. The next day I went to an office supply store and I bought a Cardex file. They had all these staggered pages of three by five cards all the way to the bottom. And I put in there, I didn't mail any information in. I don't know who you are. I'm not interested. The insurance is too expensive. I'm never going to get sick. Every objection I ever heard. And then when these women would call and I'm out selling during the day, they'd flip the thing open and I'd come back and they've got a plethora of appointments for me. So I'm still single this time. And for six days a week, I'm seeing people um, with long-term care needs in their homes and I'm, I'm being able to place between 40 and 45 policies a month. And that put me in my early 20s in the top five producers in the United States for the company I was selling for at the time, which was Amex, a division of American Express. And so early on, I had some good success there. And um, I always was problem solving, you know, it's like, well, how do I fix that? And so fast forwarding back to the FMO, I knew how to teach these advisors that this is the objections you're going to hear. And people aren't giving an objection because they're trying to be ornery. It's because they've been disappointed. They've been promised and the promise was broken. They've made bad decisions. They're trying to avoid that again. They, to be successful, for them to be successful as a, as a client of yours, they need to have confidence about their decision. So I, did, I learned early on that I need to be, have what I call humble self-confidence. That way, if you're my um, person, my client that I'm talking to, and I want to encourage you to do business with me, then you can borrow some of mine um, because maybe you're lacking because you've had bad experiences in life. You don't want to repeat it. So if I seem very confident what I'm recommending, but humble, I come across with humility so that um, it's, I'm approachable and I'm willing to listen. Um, you know, uh, telling is not selling. It's asking questions and it's listening. So a lot of times my prospects towards the end of the sales cycle will say to me, um, well, if you were me, what would you do? And I know what they're saying is, can I borrow a little bit of your confidence because I, I need to know I'm doing the right thing here. I'd say, well, if I were you, I would do exactly what I'm recommending. This is in your best interest. And I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it. And this isn't about ever pressuring anyone to do anything. It's about providing tremendous value, filling gaps in their life that they don't currently have a solution for. And you're providing either a solution they never had before or a better one than they currently have to help them gain confidence in your recommendation. Um, so that's how we got started as an FMO. And, but early on in my early career, you know, I was selling a product called long-term care. Then I sold a product called a fixed index annuity. It didn't take long before I discovered that a better way to do this um, was to uh, provide them advice and a plan. So to be a full-blown planner, I got a Series 65 license, started a registered investment advisory firm. I don't know what it is. You know, I didn't want to just be a one-man show. I wanted to be able to offer, again, what I'm doing to everybody else. So I wanted to be able to uh, have, have all of the advisors with my FMO the, on the insurance side do what I was doing on the security side. So I provided that platform for myself and for all of them. And now when I go into home, um, I present a plan. It's an 11 by 17 document. Every column lists every asset they have in the house. So like if they have a, he has an IRA and she has an IRA. Um, maybe he has a 401k and so does she. Maybe they've got some rental properties. Uh, maybe he has a pension. They both are going to have social security. So you list all of those columns, each of those assets, and you show how much the asset is, how much it's likely to grow by throughout retirement, when that asset can turn on income, how much the income will be, and whether that asset's income is ever exhausted before they pass away. You do that with all the assets, and then you show them the tax bracket you're in, the after-tax amount they can live on, and at the bottom it shows what the kids are going to inherit. That no one's ever done this for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I run to people all day long, they'll say, all I have is my statements from 
uh, from wherever my brokerage firm is, but I don't know why I own the products inside these statements. I don't know why I have that mutual fund or that bond or stock and so on. I'm not sure how I'm going to get income for life. And my, my plan shows them guaranteed income for life. It provides security um, against a volatile market so that their income is secure and rising. You don't want to retire in fixed income. You want increasing income to offset the inflation rates that we experience. And this document is their life in front of them. When I show them how much the kids are going to inherit, they're like, are you kidding me? I never inherited that kind of money. My kids don't need that much money. I said, well, isn't it good to know that now so we can just ramp up the income and not have you worry about running out of money either. You can have a better quality retirement. Oh, this is phenomenal. This is empowering. What do we do next? Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually took all of the brochures that any company who manufactures product has ever given me, and I, and I don't use them. And I instead offer a plan, and in the plan are these products, mm -hmm. but I'm not selling any individual product. You know, uh, a while back I went down to a car dealer, and I said um, there was a Corvette sitting in the showroom, and I wanted to actually purchase that to give it away in a contest for our FMO. And I said, right there is what I'm interested in. He said, okay, well, um, let me show you something. So we go down this hallway, and it's this parts department, and we go through a doorway and we go down these rows of uh, bins and he pulls out this big piston. And I said, what are we doing? He says, well, you being a man, I figured you'd be interested in how this engine makes the power. Here's the piston that makes the power. I said, no, I'd actually like to test drive that car and hear the sound of the, um, the exhaust, feel the wind in my hair um, and see the performance that way. But I don't, I don't want you, you got me in the weeds inside the engine. Do you know how many people buy brand new cars and don't even open the hood once to look at the engine? They assume there's an engine in there. Yeah. It could be gerbils attached to the wheels, <laughs> um, but, uh, but they never checked because that's not what they're buying. And they're not buying the pieces and the parts. And too many advisors in our, in our life, in our world, are selling the pieces and the parts. They're yeah. deep in the weeds and they're offering products and they should be offering a plan and a, and a dream and a picture of where you're going to take people a and better, how they're going to get there. Yeah, a vision for a better future than what yeah. they currently have. So, yeah. Carlin, you've just introduced like 25 <laughs> interesting topics and, yeah. and I want to dive into a couple of them. Sure. One real quick, you said telling isn't selling. I've right. heard you say that before. Yeah. Talk to us about your philosophy of selling. Yeah, and so if, if I wanted to offer you a widget right now, I got to know who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, whether or not you even need a widget, because I'm not going to offer you one if you don't need it, because yep. I want to feel good about this. I want to know I'm bringing value into your life. Yep. And so um, I'd start asking you questions. Um, are you looking for what this widget does, and how do you perceive it could help you? And are, are you knowledgeable about it? Have you even thought about it? Um, what are you doing right now since you don't own the widget to replace what the widget might offer you? So for the first hour in my first interview, all I do is ask questions. And in the financial services industry, um, I'm asking, do you know when you want to retire? And like, for example, you know that you can take Social Security at age 62, and that's the earliest you can take it. And 70 is the longest you can wait. Now, if my math doesn't fail me, that's an eight-year gap. So here's the question, Tim. Are you going to be healthier between 62 and 70 or 70 and 78? Mm -hmm. And you're going to say, well, 62 and 70. Sure. Well, then here's the next question. Do you want to give the best eight years of your life to your employer or to your retirement bucket list? Most people say, I've never been asked that before. I've never thought about that before. So my whole first interview is simply asking questions to get them to think about life or what we're accomplishing in a different way than they've thought before. I get done with the hour. We book another appointment, and people say to me, my, this is one of the most informative sessions I've ever had. And I didn't tell them anything. Yeah. All I did was ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> when you're asking those questions, do you typically have a, a destination in mind? Are you leading them to a particular conclusion? Or are you just helping them get clarity about their own desires and thoughts? Well, after 5,000 interviews, I know what people need to retire successfully. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask questions that will lead to what I believe will be a successful retirement. 
Um, so have you thought about when you're going to take Social Security? No, we don't know for sure yet. Okay, well, do you lean towards 62 or lean towards 70? Well, maybe we lean towards 70. Well, do you know if you'll have good health? And what, what about your grandparents and parents? Did they live a long time or not? Uh, no, actually, my father died at 75, and, and uh, my mom is, is still alive. Well, what if you died at 75 and you waited till 70 to take Social Security? That's a five-year retirement. Um, oh, I never thought about that. So, so I know what they're facing in, re in retirement. They're going to face, I never want to run out of money. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know exactly how much money I'll need each month to pay the bills. And then I want something beyond that to be able to enjoy life. And I don't know how much that needs to be. I don't know what the inflation rate's going to be. They're probably going to raise taxes, but I don't know how that's going to impact me. And I'm not sure where to get my income from because I know Social Security is not enough. So I got some savings over here, but I don't know what that savings will generate in income. I, without even asking, I already know they have all those questions. So, yeah. so I just ask to see how much of that do they know? Have they thought it through? Um, and that leads us into um, uh, giving me value to putting together this plan that provides the answers to all of those questions. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm going to change topics for a minute. I, I keep seeing this recurring theme, like you see opportunity and you seize it. And then you say, oh, it could be bet. So first of all, I'm selling long-term care. And then I'm saying I'm going to sell fixed index annuities. And then you say, well, I really need to give people a plan. So I'm going to get my Series 65. And then, boy, the other people in my company need to be able to do the same thing. So I'm going to start an RIA. And I'm... And so, why is that? Like, don't you think that most people in America who were as successful as you were at selling long-term, I mean, you were, you were doing well for yourself with long-term care. Don't you think that most people just are happy to keep selling long-term care and be at the top, you know, whatever you said, top 5% yeah. or whatever of American yeah. Express? What is it about you that says, oh, this could be better, I can 10x my income? Probably um, uh, a combination of a drive and self-confidence. And um, I, I think that uh, to another degree, you're maybe a little bit dissatisfied with where you're at. Now, um, the Bible teaches me to, be, to learn to be happy and content with wherever I'm at. So I don't mean that kind of dissatisfaction. I mean that I believe I can do better. And if I don't try to do better, then I'm probably cheating myself or my family. Um, and I always believe that tomorrow could be better than today because I probably learned something today that I can apply to yeah. tomorrow that I didn't know yesterday. So why not make the most of every day? And I tell people all the time, if I'm going to put my pants and shoes on a Monday morning and go to work, I want to have lots of opportunity. So I want to create the opportunity for me. If it's to be, it's up to me. Um, no one else cares if I'm successful or not. And there's really no limits. So we live in a, in a great country that allows us to dream and achieve whatever we want to achieve. So I think first you've got to have the dream. You've got to have some goals and you think about it and say, well, um, can, I, can I get better than where I'm at? And when I would offer someone long-term care, it's like, well, that was a great solution, but I wasn't solving all the problems in that home. I didn't talk to them about where they're going to get their income for retirement or whether they, um, when they should retire and and what inflation is going to do, their standard of living and things like that. So as you get a little deeper in the topic, those things come to my mind. It's like, well, how can I help them there? Um, and it was just kind of a natural progression if you're always looking for the next opportunity to enhance where you're currently at. And I think that if you're not afraid to fail, that's a big one. Because I discovered that you never fail unless you quit. Mm -hmm. Now, failure, you've got to make sure. If, uh, making mistakes is not failure. Making mistakes happens all the time, and I actually embrace them because it's part of how I learn. It's part of education. If I'm afraid to make a mistake, I've stopped my learning process. I'm so willing to make a mistake 
that when I want to do some new thing I've never done before, I gather the information quickly, I make a quick decision, and I call it ready, shoot, aim. So in the ready phase, I gather the information, I quickly pull the trigger, and I might have missed my target, but by missing the target, I can tell I missed my target because I pulled the trigger. You know how to correct that. Yeah, and I know how to correct it, but too many people are fearful of missing the target, so they just do the ready phase, the ready phase, and then never pull the trigger. Yeah. Um, I read a while back that the best CEOs in America make their decisions typically on about 70% of the available information. It takes too long to get up to 90% or 95. So they make it on 70. If they make a mistake, they fix it and they go on. And another trait is you don't beat yourself up for making a mistake. It's part of life. And if you can get comfortable with yourself and making some mistakes and don't beat yourself up over it, then you can excel and go forward um, and are much more likely to try more things than you otherwise would have. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Now, you talked about growing your income 10 times. I suspect that wasn't the last time you grew your income yeah. by 10 times. Right. You've done that again and again and again. Yeah. You I'm know, sure. when I started in the business in 1982, uh, or one of my first opportunities, my peers were working at McDonald's and those types of jobs, making $2.65 an hour. That was a minimum wage. And I just couldn't env envision or imagine doing anything like that, making that little bit of money. The lowest I ever made was when I drove the combine on the farm at $3 an hour when I was um, around that age. So um, I always wanted to accelerate. But when I got in the insurance business, the first mentor I had said, Carlin, if you work hard, you can make um, $1,000 a week. And I thought, well, so that's, that's $52,000 a year. This is back in the 80s. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? $52,000 a year? Well, if you say so. So I tried. I followed what they suggested. That's another point we got to talk about is the shortcut to success is finding someone else that's already doing what, what you want to do at the level you want to do it at and copy them. Um, you, know, you know, pride stops us from succeeding because, oh, it's got to be my idea or I got to do it my way. But if you would copy the other guy and you get there much faster, who cares? And plus, that guy probably copied somebody else, you know? Yeah. And, um, but, but uh, so let's see, I was talking about, um, uh, oh, well, the, I made 52000 a year. Yeah, which is almost so, what, $26 an hour yeah, compared to yeah, $3 an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah good, good mm -hmm. calculation. So uh, after I hit that, within uh, 18 months or whatever, I thought, well, what's my next goal? So I thought, I wonder if you could make that a day. Um, you know, and <laughs> so I, I figured out, well, here's, well, what would I have to do? Yeah. I remember at one point, probably in that process, um, uh, I probably wasn't quite at 365000 a year yet. And I um, was doing seminars selling long-term care insurance, and I complained to my wife that I wasn't making the kind of money I wanted to make. She said, well, how many seminars do you do a month? I said, well, one. She said, well, why don't you do two? I said, well, you know, it's twice the money, twice the risk. And she says, put up or shut up. <laughs> and I thought, that, that's a good, good advice. I appreciate God giving her to me. So I put up. Yeah. Um, and I did two seminars. What happened my income? It doubled yeah. you know, from where I was. So it didn't take long. I hit 365000 And then I found um, the opportunity to uh, do the, in, the indexed annuities. Then I started making in the millions um, annually. Yeah. Um, and I've always had this um, thought, I wonder if it's possible. You know how I thought, can you make 1000 a day? Um, uh, and, and I hit that goal. I wonder if it was possible to make a million a month you know, and have a $12 million yeah. year. And um, so you can't do that on your own. Um, and I've, I've, I've read a tremendous amount of books since I left college. I've gone to um, courses like you have. Um, with um, Dan Sullivan, um, I, I've um, gone to the Harvard MBA program, um, and uh, I've gone to the Aileron Institute and, and learned from all these people. And one of the things you learn is, is that you've got to become a great delegator, and you've got to replicate yourself through others. And that's one reason why the FMO was so um, interesting to me, because I could teach someone else how to fish, 
and then I could get a little bit off of that fish. Um, just maybe pennies or dollars, but you multiply it. And no matter how great of a personal salesman I could be, I could never accomplish the same amount of opportunity as all these people combined doing what I was doing on my own. So uh, the scaling was um, something that was uh, very valuable. I started taking my excess dollars and you know, first I paid off my debt and then I started investing in the stock market and then real estate. And um, in fact, this home's a, kind of a miracle. I've always wanted to try to make really good decisions. So I've tried to be thoughtful about them and not um, impulsive. So uh, my wife uh, wanted to have a mountain getaway for a number of years and, and I was hesitant because it's like, well, that money isn't going into the business. And I was all about spending money in the business, but not about personal stuff. And, um, but I love my wife a lot, my family, and I could see the value of having balance in life. You know, I, I know guys that work really hard, but they don't have good balance with their family, and their family suffers for it. Um, and so I wanted to have good balance. I thought, well, this could be a good getaway. I can justify it that way, and maybe not everything has to be business-related. So we found this home. God led it to us, and we bought it out of foreclosure and got a great deal on it, and it's, it's multiplied many times over. Now, right after this, and in this order, I bought my office building. But what's funny is I thought I should have bought the office building before this in terms of the way I thought. My wife convinced me to do this, and get this, this home is multiplied in value many more times than the office building has because COVID hit, and everybody left the offices, and that declined the value of offices where you can't get the same amount of occupancy rates or rents yeah. and things like that. And so that hurt that. Meanwhile, this thing's flourishing because people loved the getaway. And, um, and then we found um, the, the vacation rental market and VRBOs, and we have um, a property that benefits by that. And, and that was a lot of my wife's doing as well. So God gives you a partner for a reason. And um, I've always regretted if I didn't listen to my wife, and I fi think I finally mostly learned that lesson. <laughs> and uh, so now whenever I make any, any significant decision at all, um, she's right there with me as a sounding board so that um, she can give me her perspective. And, and man, a lot of times she thinks of something that I didn't. I, I thought I'd been through everything. I'd think of everything, but no, I share the idea with her and she comes up with something else. I love it. Uh, you were talking about doubling the number of seminars and yeah. I'm guessing you've done that again several times. Like, I don't know, on a, yeah. a, a, a given recent month, how many seminars are you or your organization putting out, do you think? Yeah, well, probably. I, mean, I know the, it's not just seminars yeah, anymore. Yeah, probably the organization maybe does um, uh, you know, see one mailing generates two seminars, so maybe the organization is doing 40 to 60 seminars a month. Yeah. Um, and um, in my personal sales practice, I can't do more than about four a month because it generates all the activity I could handle. But here's something interesting that you reminded me of. A number of years ago, probably 10 years ago, um, American Equity um, had a contest uh, offering a million dollars for the number one advisor in the country who sold the most fixed index annuities for them. And uh, so when I first heard about that, I thought, I'm not even going to try because I run an FMO, I've got an RIA, I've got a personal practice, uh, I um, have an active church life, an active family life, I've you got three children. Do, yeah. yeah, I got, I, I'm not just singly or focused there. I mean, I mean, focus is really important, but so I thought, uh, I can't do it. Then, you know, it's like turning that down, that's hard for an entrepreneur. <laughs> so then I thought, okay, well, if I were to do it, what would my life have to look like? So I plotted it all out. I thought, well, I got to do not two seminars a month, I got to do two seminars a week. And then I thought, how am I going to see all these people? So I had an assistant, and um, I decided I'd try it. And, I, and every appointment I had, I had the assistant in with me. So the minute that they were ready to do business, I could hand them off to them, and they didn't feel like I was 
um, handing them off to a subservient person because he was there with them all along. I would walk across the hallway like a doctor does to my next appointment waiting for me, yeah. and I would see that one, then he would come catch up with me, then I'd go over here and he'd catch up with me and back over here. I did it all day long, six days a week for the entire contest, which lasted for, I don't know, seven or eight or nine months. At the end of it, they called the winner out, and it wasn't me, and I was disappointed. But the winner was one of my advisors in Boston, Massachusetts, so that was pretty cool. Uh, they called out number two. Uh, that was another guy I wasn't connected, and I placed third. So I didn't win a million dollars. They only paid me a quarter of a million dollars. And, um, but you know what was bad? how much did you make on all those sales? <laughs> I know, yeah, well, <laughs> way more than that. Yeah. Um, but the best thing I learned in all of that was the million-dollar dangling carrot taught me that I was capable of more than I ever thought mm. because it just simply gave me the challenge to think through things in a way I never thought about it before. Yeah. So um, I realized all of a sudden, if I want, I'm capable of doing two seminars a week. How many people in America that are in this industry would ever consider doing that much marketing? Well, it took the million-dollar prize to get you to think that way. One of the things so, I've admired about you for a long time is when you figure out something that works, you don't just keep doing it at the same level. You like all your chips go yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. I've seen you do it when, uh, you know, I had other clients that maybe were spending a thousand or a couple thousand dollars a month on Google advertising, for example. And here you are, you figure it out, you test it small, and before I know it, you're spending a hundred thousand dollars a month on Google ads. Yeah, and yeah. You, you, Seminars. Who ever heard of doing two seminars a week? Yeah. But you figure out a system yeah. that works and you can do it. I love um, uh, finding opportunity and then thinking through how do I maximize that opportunity. Another quick example, I'm at college. This was in the late 70s. There was the oil crisis. And in California, gas prices shot through the roof and then they started rationing gas. So you were only allowed to go to the gas station if you had California plates on your car. On, uh, on the, the last number of the plate, if it was even or odd, that was the day you went. Uh, even, like, say, odd plates were Monday, Wednesday, Friday, even plates were the other days. Yep. So, but I had an Arizona plate on my pickup truck, and I could go any day. So I started ditching classes, and I bought a 100-gallon fuel tank put in the back of my truck, and I sat in those two-hour-long lines at the gas station every day and filled it up. Then I go back to the, the um, college parking lot, and I have a, a pump, and I start pumping it into the car, kids that's charging a dollar more per gallon than I paid for it, and they loved it because they could stay in class. I was ditching, mm -hmm. and they um, could get their tank filled without going to that line, and plus, maybe it's the day they weren't allowed to go. Yeah, um, so it. just opportunity. Yeah. Don't you think that most of us have, you talked about you needed that million dollar prize dangling before you did to realize you had all this untapped capacity and yeah. capability. Don't you think most people settle for a small fraction of what they actually can do and they just assume yeah. that they're mad, oh I'm so busy I just can't yeah. take on anything else and yeah. actually they're just scratching the surface. They are. This is probably where creativity comes into play. We haven't talked about this yet but um, if you can have a little bit of an imagination, think outside the box, be a little bit creative, you'll come up with things that allow you to achieve things in life you never otherwise could have done it. And some people don't even allow themselves to think outside the box. Maybe it stretches their comfort zone. But just do it as an exercise and see where it leads. So I, I was back selling long-term care here in the Denver metro area, and I learned that an association was coming into town at uh, Arapahoe Community College, and they were going to do a meeting with all their members and introduce the association's long-term care plan. So I worked hard and I found, uh, got a copy of the plan and I discovered the benefits and the rates and they were high. And I thought if I could only get on the stage at Arapahoe Community College in front of those thousand people of that, of that membership, I could convince them to go with me, but I'll bet they won't let me on the stage. So that's my gatekeeper, that's my problem. How do I find who these people are to offer them a better product than their own association was gonna give them on that night's meeting? 
So I thought about this, and I thought about this, and I came up with this idea. On the night of the meeting, I hired another guy, and there's two entrances to the parking lot. He sat at one entrance, and I'm at the other, and we recorded every license plate that came in the parking lot. I then hired a private investigator to sell me the names and addresses of all those people that owned those cars. I then wrote them a letter and said, if you went to a meeting of your association this night, you presented this plan at these rates for these ages, here's my plan, the same rates. If you'd like to get more benefits for less money, give me a call, and I sold 40-some policies off of that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Carlin, we could go on for a long time, um, but we're approaching the end of our, our normal podcast link. Okay. Uh, one thing I want to get to before we run out of time, when I talk to other people that work with you, I often hear that you're unlike most people in this business, and they talk about things like values, honesty and integrity, your Christian faith. Talk to me a little bit about the values that have guided you through all of this growth, because I think some people let growth get to their heads. They, they get that, the kind of numbers that you're talking about, and they decide that they're the captain of their fate, and they, yeah. do, and, and they can go off the deep end and do some really foolish things. Yeah. Talk to me about some, some of the values that have guided you and, and kept you grounded. God's brought into my life and my wife's life um, five fires, um, two of them where, where we lost all of our money. So twice I've had to restart all over again in Life Financial, once from the, the firm where the uh, gentleman embezzled from me with the uh, imprinted sportswear business, and another one was in the insurance industry where I had um, a partner that um, went another direction and took the dollars, and I had to start all over again. Um, so I uh, lost my money twice. And then the other three were my, affected my health. I had to have open heart surgery when I was 37 years old. And um, I got a staph infection in my heart and almost didn't make it. Uh, and then another time I had a friend in the back seat of my car accidentally shoot me through the seat with a Glock 9mm pistol. So um, if it had been slightly different, I would have been paralyzed. But they did an operation, got the fragments out, and I recovered and it was just fine. And then a number of years ago, about five years ago, I lost all my hearing in my right ear in 30 minutes. And today I have a cochlear implant to help me hear. So those five things affected my life and they helped me realize that I'm not really in control of things God is. And he brings those things into my life not to be unkind, but to help me know that how much he loves me so that I stay dependent upon him. So that I keep focused on what really matters in life. Because I can't take any of this stuff with me. And everybody's either going to go to heaven or hell, and you want to make sure you're going to heaven, right? And you want to make sure that you've lived a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So I have higher priorities than just making big, big dollars. Uh, my priorities are that I want to treat people well. I want to be a great example for them the way the Bible teaches. And I want to allow the life's lessons that God has brought in my life to allow me to enrich others through the experiences that I have experienced, both good and bad, to uh, help them have a better quality life. And so... I really care about all of our advisors. I care about their spouses and their children, the quality of their life, whether they have debt or investments and how I can help in those areas. And um, I've done a lot of personal things with my staff, uh, my advisors, to help them out that had really nothing to do with, with business. There was no ulterior motive. They say if you help a widow, you know you generally must be caring to help the widow because what can a widow do for you? Mm -hmm. And um, so we even started when my mother passed away um, a Dolores Tucker Memorial Fund to help widows around the world um, when they have needs um, because mom was a widow outliving my father by 20 years and she used to help other widows. So I took the cue from her and we kept it going and we've had a quarter of a million dollars or so go through that fund to help um, other widows around the world and their needs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you come and visit us um, at our firm um, with uh, Tucker Advisor Group or Tucker Financial Group, uh, you're going to experience employees that feel like it's a family because it is and advisors who feel like they're part of a big family because they are. Um, and it's a whole different feel and culture than what you might get at many of our competitors. Mm.
I love it. Yeah. Carlin, if there's somebody listening today that says, boy, I want that plan, that, that eight and a half by 11 or 17, yeah. whatever you said it was, uh, or yeah. maybe somebody else that says, boy, I'm a financial advisor and I sell some of these products and, and I've been looking for a firm like that. Yeah. Where do they go to find more information? They could give us a call at 1-800-734-0076. They also could go ahead and go to our website and we have a number of them, Tucker Financial Group, um, uh, Carlin Tucker and Associates, um, Tucker Financial. Uh, any of those would uh, bring you into our different sites and you could learn more information there. And it might give you an opportunity then to check us out a little bit more online and if you see what you like and you, and you like what you've heard here, what you hear here is what you're going to get. I mean, I'm no different when we were talking in the office or business session than what we'd have here. And um, I just love helping people and it's the people business. I think, I love what Starbucks said. They said we're in the people business serving coffee. We're not in the coffee business serving people. Mm. And all of my life of everything I've learned and every time I've helped someone, they've all been people. I've never been able to help a horse or, you know, they've all been people. And uh, so that's where you get the real joy out of it because there's something about being able to be involved with people's lives and better them that's very rewarding. Yeah. Carlin, I so appreciate your vision, your expertise, the value that you've created even for our listeners today. Um, more than all of that, I appreciate your friendship and I want to thank you for your time and joining us today. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's Grow With Tim podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to show us some love by following us here and on our other social media platforms. You'll find all the links at growwithtim.com.